Infirmary Media. People engage in stuff for jeweling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Who your popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios. It's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week on the program, we have an action-packed adventure duel as I compete this week with all the adventure of 1991. And my opponent... What's up? It's Man Crush coming off a really close victory. Uh, From hearing from a bunch of people... It was split. It was definitely split down 50-50. Some people think I won. Some people think I lost. But I'm here to win this week with Adventure of 1982. I'm back to the 80s. Feels like home. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So we brought back the guru of 90s grooves, Drew Zachman, host of the One Headlight 90s podcast. Hello, everybody. I am eagerly anticipating adjudicating this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and of course, hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. In the immortal words of the great poet laureate, Barrette Michels, I want action tonight, satisfaction all night. So let's play some more. Dueling Decades. Fuck yeah. All right, so let's go right down to our judge, Drew Zachman, for the official toss-off. All right, guys. So for the toss-off today, I have the actual Sega Genesis holder for the classic game, NHL 95, which I actually had that for my computer growing up. So I, I played the like the absolute shit out of that game, and I loved it. Uh, I'll tell you what, I love 94 as well, but I think 95... I give it the edge because you could actually make your own player in there. So I think uh, I think that was a big leg up on 94, but you can't go wrong with either one. Who is your favorite player in NHL 95? I, I have a feeling like I used to use a Kings a lot, and I think it was Luke Robitaille. Oh, he was a beast. Mine, so my, my favorite player of all time was Sean Burke. He was, uh, at, the, at the time of this game, he was the goalie for the Hartford Whalers, and that team was pretty bad, but... If you took line changes off, you had the line with uh, Jeff Sanderson, Pat Verbeek, and Andrew Castle. Those guys are actually pretty good. With line changes on, you're toast. Hartford? The whale? The whale, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was my team, man. I was a big Whalers fan. I was a huge Sean Burke fan growing up, so that's why I went with the whale. Also, you get Brass Bonanza in every score of friggin' goal. Like, how awesome is that? Is that a sex thing? It's not a sex thing at all. Come oh, on, man. Right. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. This Sorry. is a family show. <laughs> yeah. No. 
It's not. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you won the last battle. Why don't you call it in the air? Well, actually, I, you know what? I, I won the last one, but I lost to you two weeks ago. You did. In my first defeat in, I don't even remember. So, yeah, I'm going to take this one. So, fuck off. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go heads. Going heads. All right. So on the heads, it's, it's heads. The, uh, the cover, NHL 95. And I believe that's uh, Kirk McLean, who was the goalie for the Vancouver Canucks at that time. So a oh, little, little information coming your way, kids. So let's do the – let me Look toss it off. Let me toss it off right now. All over. Oh, it is heads. Yeah. All right, Man Crush. You have control of the board. What category are we going to start with for this adventure duel? All right. Let's start with news. This might be the second one in a row, starting with news, but I kind of dig it, and we're going to go there. So we're going to start with a news story. This is uh, December 15th, 1982, and uh, this story is heist total hits $9 million. and I have a little update. I, I, I've i been watching Unsolved Mysteries, so finding the update to this, it feels like update, so I'll give you that uh, afterwards. But uh, this is heist total hits $9 million. The $9.8 million robbery of an armored car warehouse in the Bronx by bandits who scrawled. Ready for this? Robbers was here. Not rob. Robbers was here. That's what they wrote. They, uh, <laughs> they scrawled that on a dusty mirror. Uh, it had all the earmarks of an inside job, the investigator said. And a task force was reviewing the roster of former employees. Two armed men, supposedly, allegedly, cut through the roof of the building last Sunday and made off with money in the nation's biggest cash heist ever. Of course, talking about the United States, there were bigger ones abroad. Uh, The robbers pierced the steel roof, diffused an alarm system, handcuffed the lone guard and pried open a heavy door. And they came away with, it was first reported to be $8 million, but that's some after further checks was mounted to $9.8 million. And actually in the follow-up story, it's even, and that follow-up story is from a couple months later in February. And now they're at $11 million. Uh, Here we go. Update. Uh, Like they were thinking it was indeed an inside job. Uh, Here's an article from February of 1983. Just a little update on this guard and friend arrested in $11 million robbery. Go figure that lone guard who was working during the heist, uh, who was on duty the night of the $11 million theft at a Bronx armored car company, and a friend of his were charged yesterday with stealing the money and attempting to camouflage the crime as an armed robbery. In announcing the arrest of the two men, federal and New York law enforcement authorities said none of the money had been recovered. The officials said they thought at least two other people were implicated in the theft, which took place on December 12th at the Century Armored Car Carrier Company in Bronx, New York. The guard, Christos Patanomas, I'm probably butchering the shit out of his last name, 25 of Queens, was arrested yesterday afternoon at a pool of a hotel in San Juan, Puerto Rico, while he was on vacation. Uh, the other suspect, George Leg- Legacus? Leg- Legacus. Wasn't he the dad in Webster? <laughs> Uh, 21, a part-time cook from Brooklyn, was also arrested Tuesday night. Wait, no, that was George Papadopoulos. Ah, uh, same shit. All right, <laughs> and well, not the it, guy from the news. Yeah, I don't think he'd fit through a fucking <laughs> uh, cut open roof. Uh, this guy, uh, he voluntarily appeared for questioning at the FBI headquarters in Manhattan, and they arrested him on site. 
blah, 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 blah. It goes on. Yeah, they were arrested for this shit. But they ended up stealing $11 million, which at the time was the biggest heist in U.S. history. There was one wow. uh, in the 90s. There was, uh, I think it was 95. They beat it by uh, maybe $6 million. But pretty big deal. Why would you have $11 million on hand with a lone armored guard? What fucking sense does that make? Inside job, perhaps? Well, yeah, I mean, it was an inside job, but like, Should maybe it was deep. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Maybe it was deeper inside. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like maybe it, there uh, maybe there was an update to the update. I didn't go. I didn't keep digging, <laughs> but maybe we'll have a true crime, a true crime podcast. So everybody, <laughs> their fucking mother will listen to it. and We'll just keep updating. This shit. <laughs> but anyhow, that's my first story. All right. What do you got for your second story, man crush? All right. So we're staying on adventure. My second story. Uh, this is uh, May of 1982 and uh, the article's title is the space program's first lady astronaut sally ride has date with history uh out of los angeles and i quote i have a reoccurring nightmare joyce ride said dryly at her home in encino california one recent afternoon while discussing her daughter and i keep going with this quote says i'm standing in the checkout line at ralph supermarket I look at a magazine rack, and there's Sally on the cover of National Enquirer. Well, next April, the seventh flight of space shuttle is scheduled to be launched with a crew of four that will include astronaut Sally Ride. Twenty years after the Soviets sent cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova into orbit for four days, America will have its first woman in space. Sally Ride of Los Angeles will become part of history. I can go on and on about this, but... Uh, Sally Ride, she actually died maybe about eight years ago uh, after a long bout of pancreatic cancer, but she was the first female astronaut. And this, of course, was before Challenger and all that stuff. Wow. Uh, She received many honors, including the NASA Space Flight Medal, uh, the NCAA's Theodore Roosevelt Award. She was also inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the Astronaut Hall of Fame. She was the first American woman to go where nobody has gone before. So my two stories, we got uh, two fucking idiots that stole a lot of money and Sally ride, the first American female to make it into outer space. First astronaut ride along. Sally ride, Sally ride. No, no Mustang no. Sally fans here. Nah. Is no, that about right. her? So wait a minute. So wait a minute. Russia, Russia was actually more progressive than us on something. They had they had a female twenty years earlier before we they, did. Well, you know they also sent dogs into space, so maybe they thought that she was just gonna. Yeah, they thought that she was gonna die up there. Oh, maybe that's why. I mean, it's the Soviets back then. I don't know. I'm just talking out my ass. So. Off to you, Mark. What do you got? All right. So adventure. So when I think of adventure. I always go to the greatest adventure, and that's Mount Everest. I thought you meant New Jersey. No. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to October of 1991, where four men, for the very first time, took two hot air balloons on a flight over Mount Everest. They took along with them some camera equipment. Andy Ellison and Eric Jones was the cameraman in one balloon, and in the other balloon we had Chris DeHurst and Leo Dixon, who was the cameraman in that one. Dixon went on to write a book about the adventure, calling it Ballooning Over Everest. The hot air balloons were actually modified to function up to 40,000 feet, 
one of Dixon's panoramic photographs of Everest was actually captured on a Kodak Kodachrome, and it was actually called the best snap on Earth, according to the UK newspaper, The Telegraph. If you look up this picture online, just put in Everest, best snap on Earth. It is absolutely breathtaking, and you'll see that it was taken from a hot air balloon. The uh, The gentleman who took the initial flight are offering to take passengers, if you're interested, at a cost of $2.6 million per passenger. So if you want to take a hot air balloon ride over Mount Everest, you can do so. For my second story, to start off this adventure, we're going to have to go back 5,000 years. Oh, Jesus. You had 1990 what? I had 1991. But we're, we're not going to start at 91. We got to start this adventure 5,000 years ago in the Italian Alps where a Stone Age man was murdered up in a high mountain pass. Now, how do we know this? Because in 1991, there was a couple hiking up in those Alps and they discovered the body of a man that would become to be known as Utzi. His body is the oldest intact body of a human ever discovered. Along with him, we discovered some very important tools. He actually had with him a bronze axe, which totally changed the timeline of discovery. We thought that the Bronze Age actually started a thousand years later, so it actually set back the Bronze Age a thousand years on that discovery, way before we even thought those tools were possible. Now, Utsi has had some controversy along with him, because they do say that some of the scientists that discovered him met their untimely death, and he may be cursed. I tend not to believe this, because as I looked into the story, there are hundreds and hundreds of scientists involved in uh, documenting this discovery, as well as the the hikers that found him. Now, one hiker, the, the main hiker that did find him, did several years later go on a hike in close proximity where he did find Utsi, and he did die by falling into a dark crevasse. But one of the other hikers who claims to have found Utsi as well spit on Utsi that day to mark it with her DNA. She's still alive. So I would think the person that spit on the corpse of the 5,000-year-old man would be the first person to die if there was a curse. So those are my two news stories for adventure. We're going back to 5,000 years to Utsi, the oldest Human remains ever found, and actually, you talk about true crime, this is the first murder mystery ever, and it was found on a great adventure by two people hiking up in the Swiss Alps, and then we're going to go, it was not the Swiss Alps, it was Mount Everest, 1991, the hot air balloon flyover. Update. <laughs> Turns out Utsi had a fleshlight in his pocket. He didn't have a fleshlight, but they did find an arrow in his back. Ooh. Yeah, see, that's the whole mystery. There was an arrow lodged in his back, but when they found him, it was just the tip of the arrow. Just the tip. <laughs> just for a second. There was no <laughs> shaft. The shaft had been removed. So whoever killed him left this precious copper axe that was brand new technology, but removed the arrow. Cox at home. Cox at home. They're trying to cover up the murder even 5,000 years ago. <laughs> and you wouldn't understand that unless you listened to last episode. <laughs> so go back www.duelingdecades.com and listen. So let's go down to Drew Zachman for the ruling for the news round. Yeah, these are some interesting stories. I think they're all, they all qualify as some good adventures here. So, uh, man crush, you had, uh, in December of 82, uh, they stole per the final update about 11 million 
So that was eleven million back then, right? So that's probably like what thirty-ish million. Yeah, now? it's a it's a shitload. But they got caught, right? Yeah, they got caught. They're uh, morons. Um, and then yeah, probably probably I would say the greatest adventure Wait. you could do, right, is go to space. I mean, you missed yeah. robbers was here. Okay, so that's. <laughs> There's also that. I hope that they spell it with a Z, I hope. I don't know. In the newspaper, they put uh, R-O-B-B-E-R-S. Uh, I was going to say, if it said R-O-B-B-E-R-Z, I think then that I can almost understand it if they put a Z. It would be okay. It, it would make way more sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be was. W-U-Z. U-Z. Absolutely. <laughs> Dumbass. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. So, Sally Ride. I mean, I remember that um, like growing up, like I was always big in like space shuttles and stuff and it was always like neat watching that stuff and Sally Ride, you know, that name definitely uh, is a household name, at least for, for us. It was what an um, interesting so name for the first female astronaut. Yeah. Sally Ride. Ride Sally Ride. That's what I'm saying. And man. also a great name for a porn star. Oh, my God. Yes. Come on. <laughs> Do not compare. Oh, I'm not saying it was Sally her. I'm Ride. just saying if there was another one. Sally Ride is Sally Ride is a saint. Oh, come on. You can't tell me there's not a porn out there called Sally Ride stars in Love Rocket. <laughs> well, while Drew talks, I'm going to look to see if there's a porn star with the ride. Oh, dear. Anyway. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a good adventure there. Now, Mark, you had the four men in October of 91, the four men taking two, was it two hot air balloons right over Mount Everest. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, borderline crazy. And you're, and you're saying they're actually still offering rides like today? Or were, there, were those rides available back then? They were available back then, but I, I'm assuming the offer is still open if you want to do it. I don't know if the price has changed, but their initial okay, price so, was two point. So back million. then, so back then was two, okay, right? And then you have uh, let's see, the oldest intact body ever discovered. Is that still the case? It's still the case. They're still, still finding. The yeah, they're still. I just watched the documentary on Utsi again. There's a really good Nova special on YouTube that you can watch. I had seen it when it was originally on TV. And they're still doing tests and discovering new things about him now. It's incredible. As the technology changes, we discover more and more about him. So these are all, I mean, these are all. Hold on. Very... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, all right. So uh, here's a news story from usnews.com. Retired porn star to become first adult actress in space. The retired adult actress says performing in space didn't cross her mind before accepting the mission. And it says, uh, let's see what her name. Her name is not Sally Ride, but they mentioned Sally Ride in this article. So that ties it back. It says Ugari Garian was the first man in space. Sally Ride was the first woman in space. Dennis Tito was the first tourist in space. And sometime next year, the human race will eclipse another benchmark. With Coco Brown possibly becoming the first porn star in space. Terrible. It all ties together. So sorry. See? Go ahead. Sally Ride inspiring women of all walks of yes. life. Yes. That's points for me. How do you even like do that with like factoring in no gravity? Talent. I guess so. Huge dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right. So these are all very good in there. I think you guys did a great job sticking with the adventure theme here. Uh, I, I feel like uh, we have we have one we have someone going into space, then we have someone going over Mount Everest. So I, I'm kind of putting those together. Though Sally Ride is the first female to go to space, that's pretty big. But I feel like the uh, those clowns, those robbers, if they didn't get caught, I feel like I would I would be okay with that. But finding the oldest intact body and it's potentially cursed, 
I mean, that's like, isn't that like the the whole plot of like one of those mummy movies? Like that's like an Indiana Jones thing or something like that. <laughs> so I think I think round one, I'm going to go Mark on this one here. But Sally Ride inspired a porn star to get fucked in space. You do not, you do not get bonus points for that, man oh, crush. Jesus. <laughs> Maybe next time we have a theme, another your next theme episode, we can change it to porn inspired somethings. That's a good one. I like where I like where your mind's at. <laughs> there you go. All right, Mark, where are we going? All right. You know what? For the next category, let's head on over to the music round. All right. So for my first music selection, I am going to go with the classic Walking in Memphis by Mark Cohen. Mark Cohen, yep. Released March 1991. Uh, it reached number 13 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart in 91, uh, and it was the only top 40 hit for Mark Cohen as well. Now, the song is a very personal autobiographical song to Mark Cohen. Uh, you know, one night he was sitting, al- sitting alone listening to his demos, and he came to the realization that there's no way he should even be signed. He hasn't even written any good songs yet. He's 28 years old. You know, guys like James Taylor had written Fire and Rain. He wrote that when he was 18. Jackson Brown wrote These Days when he was 17. He thought to himself, I'm already 10 years older than these geniuses. It's never going to happen for me. So he remembered an interview he read about James Taylor, who said James Taylor said that he overcame writer's block by taking an adventure to a place he had never been before. So Mark Cohen packed his bags, and he headed out to Memphis. A friend of him had told him that there's two things he's got to do in Memphis. The first thing, go to the full gospel tabernacle choir church. And the second was to visit the Hollywood Cafe in Robinsonville, Mississippi, to see Muriel Davis Watkins play. She was a retired school teacher. All these references can be found in the song, Walking in Memphis, that that whole journey helped him inspire, and it really saved his career. You know what's amazing about that song? Well, I don't know if it's amazing, but remember when MTV had videos and they were like bigger videos? Like if uh, Motley Crue had a new song that came out, it would say exclusive. Yep. Right. Like right above it. That Mark Cohen song said exclusive. And I never knew why the fuck Mark Cohen had the exclusive <laughs> tag. So if you know the answer to that, please let us know because. It still doesn't make any sense to me. Probably it was because MTV was the only place that would play his videos. Walking in Memphis, put on my blue suede shoes. I just don't see walking in Memphis getting played on the box or BET or much music. But they didn't even have like that exclusive title. Just they threw that on every like really big band exclusive. Maybe if the record label paid extra. Would they really pay extra for Mark Cohn? Uh, good point. It's, it's baffling. You know who they would pay extra for, though? Your number two pick. Is my number two pick. Ah, uh, there you go. And that was a band called Metallica, who in 1991 oh. came out with their Black Album. The fourth song released off that album was the song Wherever I May oh, Roam, which is a fantastic is. adventure song. It actually recounts the travels of the band. Uh, you know, Metallica was one of those bands that in the early years were very road-heavy, Of course, there's no internet. There was no other way to market their music. Too heavy for mainstream radio until the Black Album came out. They saw great commercial success with that. But the lament on on the track, Wherever I May Roam, about all those weird, road hard and weary days. I thought you say Hare Krishnas. (laughs) I thought he was going to say that too. (laughs) From Airplane. (laughs) Do you want this pamphlet? I don't remember that in the song. (laughs) I know that song very well. 
<laughs> so the song reached number two on the Billboard album rock tracks and 82 on the Hot 100. Uh, but it reached number one in Finland. So that's something right there. So that's my second adventure song. Although technically it didn't get released till 1992. I'm going to throw that out there, even though the album came out in my year of 91 because it was the fourth single it carried over until the fall of the next year. So technicality. It is a technicality. I will I will allow it. <laughs> wherever I may roam and walking in Memphis. My two musical selections. Walking in Memphis. All right, man crush. What do you got, man? All right. Uh nineteen eighty two. You know, like one of the cool things with adventure as a genre is that it mixes amazing with other genres to create like this incredible like subgenre. You know, obviously we all know like action adventure, but we also have sci-fi adventure crime adventure mystery adventure comedy adventure so on and so on it's really it's one of the most dynamic genres and this really never dawned to me like until i was doing the research for this one so i just wanted to give some props to the adventure genre as a whole because i think it's kind of overlooked with like just because it gets lumped into every other genre so i wanted to throw that out there and also we're picking adventure singles with this round. So that's why you might not hear an entire album. We're only picking singles. So that's why we did this just in case. So people aren't like, why didn't you pick a full album? That's why we did it like this. Anyways, this pick doesn't disappoint when it comes to adventure, sci-fi adventure in this case. And I honestly, I never broke down the lyrics of the song before, but this is some trippy shit. I'm pretty sure I've been, like my entire life. I've been making up lyrics to this song. So let me get, I'll give you a piece. A cloud appears above your head, a beam of light shining down on you, shining down on you. No? Everybody knows this one? <laughs> I know where you're going with this one, man, Crush. The cloud is moving near still. Aurora Borealis comes in view. Those are really the words? Yes. Seriously? Yeah, I never fucking... Those aren't your made-up words. No, 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 no. My (laughs) made-up words were probably like, comes in view, (laughs) like something like that. But I'm sure you figured it out. It's uh, I Ran So Far Away uh, by Flock of Seagulls. The track, which it topped at number nine that year on the Billboard Hot 100, and even today it's relevant. It has over 100 million plays on Spotify. Numerous spots in entertainment over the years, including the theme to 2002's Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Uh, VH1 also nabbed this as the second best one-hit wonder of the 80s. And actually, the song is about a girl getting abducted by aliens or some shit like that. That's an adventure. Yeah, and so he (laughs) ran away. I was like, what the fuck? I never had any clue that that's what this was about until I broke down the lyrics, but... Yep, first one that, and that's probably why his hair is so fucked up, because the aliens would do that, because that shit was crazy. Either the the aliens or the 80s, one or the other. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You see D.B. Sweeney's hair and fire in the sky? Shit was all fucked up. Yes. Aliens did that. Aliens. So, yeah, so that's my first pick. Uh, My second pick, this is the, the bigger one, I think, personally. February 12th, 1982. Uh, You know, coming into 1982... This heavy metal band, they already released two albums. Both the albums are pretty damn good. They just finished their 1981 uh, Killer World Tour. 
uh, but they were ready. They were ready to move on from their lead vocalist at the time, Paul Denano, who was I guess he was getting really bad with like alcohol and drugs, and so bad that they needed to get a new singer like quick. So they auditioned a new guy, and they did a few quick shows with him to finish off 1981. And then five weeks prior to their next album dropping, the band released this song on February 12th just to get a feeling for the new guy to see what would happen. And they put this out before the album. Uh, The single was released by the band with the brand new singer at the helm who happened to be the uh, former lead singer of Samson. And at the time he went by the name Bruce Bruce. If that's any hints for you guys, Uh, one of the most popular songs ever from this band happens to be the first song ever recorded with this new lead singer. It's got 154 million plays. It has 154 million plays on Spotify. So it's not too shabby for one of the best metal bands of all time. Uh, The song is about English settlers arriving on the shores of uh, like indigenous American territories and the battles between the settlers and the indigenous natives. Uh, The song kind of, it tells both sides of the coin from the perspective of the European settlers and the natives in the area, really powerful stuff. And of course, if you haven't figured it out, I'm talking about Bruce Dickinson, Iron Maiden and the song run to the Hills. You know, it, it all starts right here. The song, the band, as we know it, it all starts with run to the Hills. So if uh, a little bar trivia for you, somebody says, what's the first song in Iron Maiden and Bruce Dickinson? There it is fucking run of the hills you're welcome thank you fantastic pick man i love that song that's you know one of the great iron maiden classics of all time all right so over to drew zachman for the ruling for the music round adventure music yeah this is a tough one um i knew where i was leaning uh before you said iron maiden now i gotta rethink my 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 uh my strategy here so you had flock of seagulls was that I, m- I remember that was on GTA. Was that really 2002? Yeah, that was fucking 2002. Oh my god. I you know. I would I would have been like I don't know, 2009, 2010. I wasn't a no. huge fan of that song until I played I loved that game. Vice City was great. I was Yeah, that was a crazy. And game. I remembered the commercial, so I looked it up and I was like, god, 18 years ago. You could not see that commercial. That commercial was freaking everywhere. Um which means that song was everywhere back then too. And then you have Iron Maiden Run the Hills. Yeah, Bruce Dickinson also, Bruce Dickinson was fantastic on that Saturday Night Live skit with the cowbell. So extra <laughs> points for him there. And then Mark, you have Mark Cohen walking in Memphis. That guy's a, a top-notch one-hit wonder. And it's it's a good, it's basically just like him telling his story pretty much of an adventure. So I feel like that qualifies. And Metallica, man, that album. Well, the the, the song is fantastic, but that album is equally good. That album, I feel like, gets a bad rap. I feel like a lot of like the old school Metallica fans are like, "Oh, this isn't thrash metal." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's still good." I don't, I don't see why it got. I mean, it sold a ton of copies, but I feel like it was like a gateway album into listening to metal. It was for me anyway. It was also a gateway to uh, load and reload. <laughs> well, now, hey, load isn't that bad. Now, reload. Mm. If you if you if you put load and reload together and you make one album. It's a load of shit, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. If anybody else came out with load, if 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 fucking uh, Creed came out and they released an album load with those same exact songs, people would be like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." No, 
But because it was metallic, <laughs> no, it's Creed. You <laughs> no. killed yourself when you said Creed. Yeah, yeah. Because even now they'd be like, "Oh fuck, Creed, Scott Stapp." Creed could release the fucking wall, and people would still <laughs> think it sucks. Okay. Creed is like the Nickelback of the '90s. No, Nickelback is a Nickelback. Creed, <laughs> do not, do not besmirch the good name of Mark Tremonti. That guitarist is exceptional. All right, um, give him Alter Bridge then. Oh God, uh, fine, Alter Bridge. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that album is, I mean, I, I honestly don't even know how many times I've listened to that album. It, that was actually my introduction to Metallica. Uh, and then from there I went backwards and, and all their old stuff is also fantastic too. So I get your point though. Yeah. I see that. It isn't, it is a gateway to people that didn't really hear about them growing up. And plus you're a little bit younger than us. So I think, you know, in 1991, you didn't really get the 80s metal until, you know, yeah. you're probably yeah. a little bit older. So it was a gateway drug and MTV. Yeah, it was a gateway, <laughs> gateway drug. Yeah, it was, it was a gateway album. I mean, you're definitely on drugs if you thought Load and Reload was good. So it did its job. <laughs> Load isn't terrible. It's not that bad of an album. When you have to say an album, Metallica isn't terrible, set the bar. It's not good. Metallica set the bar very high because they were that good. I mean, think about it. Uh, Kill Em All is a good album, but then you have Ride the Lightning, perfect album. Master of Puppets, perfect album. Justice, perfect album. The Black Album, also perfect, a little bit different, but still a perfect album. Like I, I could listen to all those albums straight through. And they fell off a cliff. Name me one band that can put what four albums. Oh, I'm not like saying that no. I like Metallica. I just it didn't. I don't think. It, I don't even know if it would have mattered what they did next. Everybody still would have been like, eh, it's not that great. Like, how stuff. do you? How do you? How do you compare yourself to yourself when you're that good? So. It's not bad. Give Load a listen to again. Um, <laughs> no. Boy, I don't know where to go here. I would say. Now you got to pick. It's not the album though. You got to pick. This is based. No, on no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I love that song. We're on my own too. But I think by that point we knew who Metallica was, and that was. It's a good song. Personally, it's not my favorite off that album. But I mean, that doesn't mean it's a bad song. It's a, it's a great song. Mark Cohen, I mean, he didn't do anything after that. So was was and I run was that a one hit wonder from Flock of Seagulls? Was, did they have yeah. anything else? They so we were a one hit wonder. We got a couple one hit wonders going right there. I feel like I lean a little bit more towards Mark Cohen over Flock of Seagulls, but Run to the Hills that definitely put Iron Maiden on the map. I think I have to go with Man Crush on this one, which kind of upsets me because I really love that Metallica song, but I think. Without putting my bias in this year, I think Run to the Hills, I think, really did put Iron Maiden on the map, whereas Metallica, they're already there. And- no, I think I think you're right on that, Drew. I, I really don't think when you break it down that way, it's really hard to to pick wherever I may roam over Run for the Hills. I don't think anyone's going to do that, and if they do, they can go straight to hell. I think Run, <laughs> Run to the Hills is a way better song. Even I'm going to admit that. So I think you're fair in your judgment. You asked if Flock of Seagulls is a one-hit wonder. Their top five songs on Spotify. One, I ran. Two, I ran. <laughs> Three, Space Age Love Song, which actually has 17 million plays. Four, The More You Live, The More You Love, six million plays. And their fifth song, I ran. So in five songs, <laughs> I ran is on there three times. It's 60%. Okay. Wow. And they have uh, 1.6 million plays a month. And I would say that... 1.3 or probably Iran. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I love this this whole thing with uh, looking at the plays on 
Oh my uh, goodness. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, Mark Cohen, surprisingly 110 million plays for walking yeah. Memphis. Yeah. But then and, look at his next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of a drop off there. <laughs> 110 million down to 3.7. All right. Uh, moving on. Let's see. Uh, we're tied one, one going around three. <sighs> let's go television. All right. Television, October 1st, 1982. We get a real fan favorite here. Uh, this show has pretty much made this guy a household name. NBC brings us an action adventure crime comedy drama about a female private detective who partners with a con man. Uh, and she does this because uh, she started her own business and she realized that she's not getting any work because she's a woman. And you know what? It seems really dated because it's 1982. This is actually based off a concept from the 60s that they turned into a show. So she hires this con man to assume the role of head private eye, Remington Steele. Ooh. All right. Mm. Uh, the show would go on for five seasons, 94 amazing episodes if you were into this type of thing. It wasn't a ratings juggernaut, but the show had a really loyal following. In 1986, NBC planned to cancel the show, but they got like tens of thousands of angry letters from people telling them to keep it on the air. So they started playing summer reruns to see, you know, how it did. And the ratings were good. So they reversed their decision from canceling it and they released a shortened season five. But in doing so, they kind of fucked some shit up along the way. <laughs> so they brought this, they brought it back and Brosnan had to drop out of the Bond flick Living Daylights. He had been long rumored to be like Roger Moore's successor. And now he'd have to wait another eight years because he was under contract from NBC. So he had to drop out of that picture. Of course, did not go to him. Who did it go to, Mark? Timothy Dalton. Come on. This is one of your favorites, bro. No, I know. All right. (laughs) I I like the Dalton one. He was he was he was uh, Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig. Yeah, I agree. Timothy Dalton was has always been my favorite Bond. So license to kill. Very good. My favorite Bond movie. Hands down. The other thing that they fucked up here. His co-star, Stephanie Zimbalist, she was actually supposed to be Officer Lewis in RoboCop. Really? Wow. Yeah. And she had to drop out of that. to, And they only did like Jeez. six long episodes for this fifth season. So it's pretty fucked up. They like ruined everybody's life, NBC, man. <laughs> what, like, what the fuck? Uh, you know, what could have been? All right. And then my second pick. This was more of a, a personal pick, something that I liked. October 3rd, 1982, short-lived. And I just posted up on our Facebook before we started recording. Uh, it's a sci-fi action-adventure series. Again, NBC put it out, and it starred the ill-fated John Eric Hexum. Uh, I spoke about him a few episodes back. If you missed that episode, go to www.duelingdecades.com. You'll see what I'm talking about. But we were talking about the show Cover Up, uh, where John Eric... He actually had a tragic accident on set where he shot and killed himself with a prop gun. I remember, like I told you guys all about that. Really sad stuff. Hexum, like, again, this is two shows this guy had back to back on a network. He was getting work and he was being viewed as like a really like an up and coming like lead guy. All right. This show would only last for one season, 20 episodes on NBC. And it's a really terrible decision that they canceled it. In one season, the show was averaging 17 share, and it was going head-to-head with the juggernaut 60 minutes. 
All right. So that's really good that they had a 17 share. But NBC, they heard rumors that there were problems at the 60 Minutes office. And if they put on a competing news show, then the NBC counter news programming could topple 60 Minutes. But in spite of that thinking, NBC cancels John Eric Hexum's Voyagers after one season, and they replaced it with a show called Monitor, which was a total turd, and it averaged a seven share, which was far, obviously far below Voyagers. Voyagers is my pick, by the way. Uh, they did bring the show back in 1985, uh, right after Hexum died in late 84. They started putting this together. They utilized the pilot, some other scraps from the show, and they put it together in a straight-to-VHS version of Voyagers. But just think, though, had they kept the show on the air, John Eric Hexum's accent might have never taken place, and the guy might have still been alive. Way to go, NBC. That's two in a row. Fucking lives up. Uh, anyway, it's a really fun show. Uh, Hexum was the uh, like the main character, Phineas Bogg, and he had this golden pocket watch that he could time travel with, and he had uh, this kid with him, Jeffrey Jones, and the two of them would pop out this watch, and they would travel through time, and they would repair errors in history. Somebody needs to find that fucking pocket watch and stop NBC from canceling the show, though. <laughs> Uh, but there you have it. I had uh, Voyagers, again, not a super popular show, ahead of its time, good sci-fi adventure stuff, and then Remington Steel. What do you got, Mark? All right. Television round. 1991 television. You know, I got two of the great animated adventure cartoons of all time. One started in 91 and one ended in 1991. So we're going to start with the show that started in 1991. And for my first one, I give you The Adventures of Tintin. It's an animated TV show that was produced in France and in Canada. It's The Adventures of Tintin by Belgian comic artist Georges Prosper Remy. I was never a big Tintin fan, but a lot of people are. In 1991, we got 39 half-hour episodes that were produced over the course of three seasons. Uh, the television series was directed by a French director, Stefan Barnakowski, or Barnakowski. Uh, the series used traditional animation techniques, which was really cool. Although I was not a big fan of Tintin myself, I was a little old for it at the time, I really thought the animation was cool because it was a callback to that classic animation style, and I always liked shows that had that. The series did adhere closely to the original books, uh, which was a rarity for a lot of kids' animation. Now, although we only got 39 episodes, that's not where the adventures of Tintin ended. Of course, the series would live on in other television series based on him and in movies, and of course, they had a major motion picture release just a few years ago. So for my second selection, this was a show that unfortunately came to an end in 1991 and was one of my personal favorite cartoons growing up. I give you Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Because, of course, there's nothing better than starting an animated TV show based off of a sugary food product. So it first aired in 1985, and the series went till 1991. There were 65 shows that 30 consisted of two 11-minute cartoons. So all in all, there was 95 distinct overall episodes. I was an absolutely huge fan of this show. 
It was very up-tempo. There was a nice little uh, lesson in each episode. It was a sitcom format for an animated show. Matter of fact, this was the first time that Disney had ever done a show like this. It really started a trend. It was the first major serialized animated television series for Disney, and it's often credited by its animators and historians as helping jumpstart the entire 80s and 90s cartoon revolution. So yeah, so that's my first show that unfortunately came to an end in 91, but I was shocked to learn that it ended in 91. I remember way after that, because of course it lived on in reruns for years and years, all the way up till 1997. And of course, if you want to watch Disney's Gummy Bears, as of uh, November 2019, it was released on Disney+. Plus. So the adventures of Disney's The Gummy Bears and the adventures of Tintin. So that's what I got for the television round. All right. So Remington Steel, I remember, I actually remember watching that. Uh, a big Pierce Brosnan fan. I love Goldeneye. That movie's great. Um, but I remember Remington Steel for sure. Voyagers, I'd never seen that. But that's actually, sounds terrible. <laughs> what happened to that guy? I, I Googled him real quick when you were talking about him. He seemed like a, you know, good looking guy. You know, like maybe he could have uh, actually, you know, maybe like been in some more action or adventure movies you know, for the rest of his career. I don't know. Oh, sure. Let me, know. Uh, let me just read some of these. If you guys go to our Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, you never know. Maybe I'll start pulling fucking comments from shit that I'm going to post on an episode. So I posted this up. Let me just tell you what some of the people said about this. Uh, Mark Robertson said, I remember it ran on Sunday nights and I think I saw every episode sad about what happened to John Eric Hexham. Uh, Taj Hill said the producers were secretly teaching us about history and we loved every minute of it. Jason Lindsay said, uh, I kind of remember hearing about it. Wasn't it like a time travel show? Uh, Norman Rudolph <laughs> said Voyagers. It felt like a prelude to Quantum Leap. Uh, Alan Linsall fucked up the name and said Vinius Boggs. But sure, that's close. He said, I think this was a man's character's name. I think it had something to do with pocket watch or something and time travel. Uh, Mark Senator said, love this show. Sadly, it only lasts once even, uh, Les Hammonds loved it. Carlo Moran. Here's some shit. I didn't know. Mino Palouse, who is the, uh, the little kid that he traveled with. That's actually the brother of Sully Moonfry. Really? Yeah. Huh. No shit. I didn't know that. Uh, somebody and a few people know this guy. Another person said, uh, it's a boy from Poltergeist. Another one said my boy Mino. So, yeah, the people watch this shit, man. And thanks to all those people that posted that. Just go on our Facebook. There's 40,000 people on there. We post shit. Say what you like. But sorry, I had to cut that off because I had a, I happened to look and I was like, holy shit, look at this. Well, while you were doing that, I actually did some research as well. And you were bringing up the pocket watch and whatever happened to it. It actually resurfaced in 93 with uh, Captain Coons and Pulp Fiction. Really? Are you making that up? <laughs> <laughs> the pocket watch. Had it up I, know, ass. I know. I know. I had that piece of metal up my ass. <laughs> Three years. All right, Drew Zachman. What's your ruling for this round? Yeah. So I do. I like uh, Voyager sounds like actually I might have to check that one out because I do like time travel type shows. I might have to look into that one. Uh, Adventures of Tintin. I don't. I can't say I ever watched that one. Gummy Bears, absolutely watched that one. So, Man Crush, so the Remington Steel, that was the debut? Were they, they both were debuts? They were both debuts, yep. Okay. No I think of shows here. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go with that, I think. Uh, I'm going to go with Man Crush on these. 
Sorry, Mark. I got to go with the, t- the two debuts. Voyagers also sounds like a Nietzsche. I'm definitely going to check that one out. I'm not going to bother looking into Adventures of Tintin, even for my kids. <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> you know, no, no Tintin for you. Although we do have Disney Plus, but just put on Disney's The Gummy Bears on Disney Plus. They'll be just as happy. I promise. I I am getting them into the original Ducktales and Tailspin. Nice. So we got that going for them. But. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going. Man crush that one there. All right, man crush. You take a two to one lead heading into the first two point round. We got hot products and movies left. Where do you want to go, man? Let's go. Uh, let's go. Hot products first. April twentieth, nineteen eighty two. This is a game straight out of my childhood. This is an enormous game for the Atari twenty six hundred, and I was fortunate enough to have this one. And the game was fortunate enough to be released eight months prior to the whole AT fucking video game debacle that basically destroyed the entire industry for a couple of years. But unlike the ET game, this actually would become one of Atari's best-selling video games on the Atari 2600 with a number around 4 million copies sold. And uh, it was the most popular video game for the next 15 months after its release in April 20th of 1982. And it became the catalyst for side-scrolling games moving forward. This is the game where you uh, you have to navigate Pitfall Harry. Do you guys know the game I'm talking about? You uh, you navigate them through quicksand, fire, snakes, crocs, scorpions, not the band, logs, <laughs> swing from vines, collect treasures along the way. You'd find gold and silver, diamond rings and money. And the game, it has a lot of sequels, the last of which came out in 2012, and it's actually still available for iOS and Android. The game had its own cartoon series in 1983 also, uh, and it's Pitfall. Yeah, game had the absolute most annoying sounds and soundtrack ever. Oh, it's 1982. The game was so anxiety-inducing. You'd be playing almost an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I love this game. Wasn't there like a time limit in this game? Yeah. Like you had to do everything at a certain time. Maybe that's why you, like people get anxiety. It stems from fucking pitfall. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like on a lot of my Atari games growing up cuz we I probably had like 50 Atari games cuz at one point they were being sold for like a dollar. Yeah. And uh I'd say on 80% of them I would play the game with the volume all the way down. Oh, you had to. Yo, the, the the fucking soundtracks of these games were so bad. And the sound. Nothing compared to computer games a couple of years later was so much better. But yeah, that's uh, my first pick, April 20th, 1982. You got the release of Pitfall on the Atari 2600. My second pick, going with something that I never do, reading. Uh, June 10th, 1982. We got the best-selling book by Stephen King, uh, the story about the gunslinger, Roland Deschain, and his adversary, the man in black. It's Stephen King, of course, so it's got some horror in it. It's got some fantasy in it, some sci-fi, and, of course, some adventure. The adventure takes us through the desert in search of the man in black in the novel, The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. Uh, The book was re-released numerous times. Uh, matter of fact, in 1982, they sold out of the book and it went out of print. So when Pet Cemetery came out in 1983, 
they made a mention on the cover that King was the author of like blah, 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 and Gunslinger. So people started bombarding the publisher like, where the fuck is Gunslinger? I didn't get it, which led the publisher to release another 10,000 copies in 1983, which also sold out. And then again in 2003, Stephen King added another 35 pages to this book and then re-released it again in an expanded edition, which helped the plot out and some of the continuity issues with the rest of the series. And then, of course, like I like to say on here, book got legs because it got a movie in 2017, which starred Idris Elba as Roland Shane and uh, Matthew McConaughey as the man in black. So uh, there are my two picks, The Gunslinger and Pitfall. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got, Mark? Let's take a look here. So for my hot products, you know, I wanted to go with some great action adventure toys. And there's no better adventure toys than the action figures that were released in 1991. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. The follow-up to the very popular movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So Kenner put together a series of Bill and Ted action figures based on the movie, Excellent Adventure, the first one. But this these were released when Bogus Journey came out. So you're getting action figures for the first movie as the second movie was released. So they released all kinds of figures and characters from the movie. You had Bill S. Preston. Ted Theodore Logan, you had Rufus playing keyboards, Genghis Khan on drums, Billy the Kid with a guitar and a lasso, Abraham Lincoln played keyboards, and you could actually pull off his stovepipe hat, and underneath was a wild stallion sign, like, sticking out of his head. Makes no sense whatsoever. They did have Death with the scythe guitar. Now, Death, of course, was from the second one but they included it in the toy line for this one. There was actually, they actually made a phone booth as well that you could connect a character to with a line and then push a button on the phone booth and it would pull him into the phone booth. But oh, wow. the the big selling point to all of these action figures were you could get a cassette tape and a speaker and actually plug headphone jacks in to the back of the action figures. And as you squeeze their legs together, they would play music. It was kind of like a start and stop button for the audio. So there was a commercial produced for this, and there's actually a kid saying on it, squeezing their legs together gets them jamming. (laughs) I'll post this commercial up to our Facebook page. When we post the episode, you guys will get a kick out of it. So that's my first one, the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure action figures released in 1991. That's my first hot product. My second hot product, I don't think I'm going to have to go into too much detail on because it's an adventure that we all hold near and dear to our heart. It's one of the greatest adventure video games ever made and one of the greatest video games ever made ever. It's The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, released November 21st, 1991 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. You know, The Link to the Past was a landmark game for Nintendo, Instead of using the side-scrolling perspective that they introduced in Zelda 2, which was kind of a flop, it returned to the traditional values of Zelda. Kind of that overhead view, but with this time with improved graphics. A Link to the Past also marked the first appearance of something that we would see in all other Zelda games and became a Zelda trademark. And that's the existence of two different parallel worlds, the light world and the dark world. 
IGN actually placed it as uh, number 11 in its top 100 games of all time. Yeah, so that's what I got for Hot Products for Adventure. The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure action figures released for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Those are good picks there. Holy jeez. So I, uh, so Man Crush, you had Pitfall was released for the Atari 2600. Uh, I feel like that game is like your like a straight up adventure, right? It's almost like Indiana Jonesy ish. It really. I, is. I, mean, I, they, I played the yeah. crap out of that. Uh, I so I didn't I didn't have it for the Atari. We actually had a Commodore 64, so I played it for that like for hours. Great game. I love that game. That was that was fun. Four million copies sold, which is pretty crazy. A good game. Uh, and then you had Gunslinger released by Stephen King. I mean, anytime King releases a book, people lose their damn minds. Uh, for a good reason, because usually his stuff is pretty good. There's that. So, and then uh, Mark, you had Bill and Ted, the the Bill and Ted toys, where you get to you get to squeeze their legs and play some music. I think that's a uh, <laughs> that's fun for every that's fun for the family. And Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past. Yeah, Link to the Past. That's uh, that's a tough one. That, that game is up there. I, I I'm not so some of the Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. I didn't I didn't I never had a Nintendo or Super Nintendo growing up because we we had the Commodore 64. Hell yeah. So some of those games, some of those games, I, I wound up like playing, but like wait, like now I, I might play them now, just more like as a retro thing to play them, just for the sake of playing them. But I don't know. I, I feel like for me, like it didn't really hit me because I didn't have the systems back then to really understand the impact. Like some of the Nintendo games, like Punch Out, like yeah, I played some of the main games if I went over to someone's house, but games like that, I, I didn't really play too, too much. Although I did play, was it Ocarina in Time, which is for the Nintendo sixty four? Is that the one? Yeah, Ocarina of Time. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so I had I had a Nintendo sixty four. That was actually the first Nintendo that I got, and I had that. That game was a fucking blast. I love playing that game. So I don't know. This is a tricky one. I feel like uh, Zelda. So I compared the two video games. I would say Zelda probably is the bigger game compared to Pitfall. Though I do love Pitfall. Uh, but then the Bill and Ted's toys, where you squeeze their legs for crying out loud, Mark. <laughs> And don't forget, Pitfall, it started the whole side-scroller action. Here's how I'm looking at this. I, w- I would say Zelda is the bigger game than Pitfall. However, those, those Bill and Ted toys, Mark, I don't think they're holding up for me. Stephen King is fucking Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King is Stephen King. I, yeah, yeah, that's the best way to that's the best way to describe it. Now, if, now, Mark, if you came out and said fucking He-Man was released, then I'd be like, no-brainer. Like Merman came out on, on in ninety one, which I know was in the eighties, but if you said like Merman or fucking Fisto, my boy Fisto, that guy's fantastic. I couldn't fist them all. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't fist them all. I'm not gonna argue with you too much on that because you know, these Bill and Ted's excellent adventure toys, half of the line that Kenner developed, they never even released to the general public. So <laughs> uh, the details that are left out on Mark's face. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, this is this is Man Crush here. Yeah, I, I got to go Man Crush. Um, yeah, Zelda's the better game than Pitfall. But, I mean, Stephen King's book, I think, definitely uh, beats uh, Bill and Ted's toys right, and squeezing their legs. Alrighty, Well, that seals this one. Man Crush picks up an <laughs> early victory. But we're playing for pride still. <laughs> oh, I have no pride. <laughs> <laughs> Redemption! All right, so we're going to head on to the movies round. Man Crush, do you want to go first, or do you want to defer? Uh, Go ahead, you can go. All right. So, 
my first movie for the adventure movies. Man, this is one of the great adventure movies of all time. Released June 14th, 1991. I give you the absolute classic from the great director Kevin Reynolds, who gave us Waterworld. <laughs> I give you Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring oh. Kevin Costner, Morgan Friedman, the very beautiful Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, Christian Slater, and of course, Alan Rickman. Nothing like a good original story to start off <laughs> 1991. <laughs> hey, but when you're talking about adventure, it doesn't matter if it's an original story. This is Robin Hood, one of the greats, if not the greatest adventure story ever written. The best thing about this movie is Brian Adams. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> that panty dropper of a song. Uh, the movie uh, cost $48 million to make. Oh, man. But the cumulative worldwide gross was $390 million plus. Cumed. They cumed. Yeah, they they cumed all over the place with this movie. It's because of Brian Adams. Uh, yeah, I mean, seriously, I, I'm I'm saying it in jest, but when you think about how big that song was on MTV, it was massive. Yeah, it's like you you watched the like a mini fucking clip of the movie eighty times a day. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're lucky, yeah. The, the Brian Adams video was the ultimate trailer yeah. for this yeah. movie. So that's my first one, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Say what you will about it. It's a great adventure film. So that's my first one. My second one came out December 11th, 1991. You know, when Captain James Hook kidnaps his children, an adult Peter Pan must return to Neverland and reclaim his youthful spirit in order to challenge an old enemy. He had to go back to Michael Jackson's house? <laughs> that would be an adventure. Yes, we're going back to another old story in the Steven Spielberg classic, Hook, starring Dustin Hoffman, Robin Williams, Julia Roberts, Bob Hoskins, and the beautiful Maggie Smith. This is <laughs> this is a movie that we've all watched a thousand times, man. Rufio! <laughs> Maggie Smith was young back then. She's probably, what, like 63? Back in 91? Yeah, but she was actually wearing makeup to look like a 90-year-old woman in that. So she actually Ugh. looks, if you want, go back and watch Hook, Maggie Smith looks today the exact same as she looked in Hook in 91. It's amazing. She's been 90 for the last 30 years. So yeah, this was just, if you were a young kid at the time, this might have been the movie that introduced you to Robin Williams. And it was kind of false advertising. And what I mean by that is I never realized it until I started going back and researching for this episode. Robin Williams was completely shaven for this movie. They shaved him from the waist up. All of his arm hair, chest hair, back hair. I think that's the only time they've ever done that for a movie. Because it would have kind of looked really weird with Peter Pan being, you know, looking like fucking Sasquatch there. So He was a hairy man. Oh, it was horrible. So I guess to, to have that... Boyish charm still. They had to shave down Peter Pan. Shaved his pubes. <laughs> so the movie was nominated for five Oscars and just goes on to be one of those youthful classics. I don't think it's a movie that's going to be technically one of the best movies ever made, even on Spielberg standards. But it has a soft spot in my heart just because of the, the great Robin Williams. So that's what I got. Hook in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Maggie gets me soft. Maggie gets me hard. <laughs> In my heart. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, over to you. What do you got for some adventure movies? 
All right, June 4th, 1982. First off, this is associated with a, like a famous television series that launched in 1966. It would go on to have like 12 movies to boot, all right? But with 12 movies, there's usually one movie that rises above the rest, like the cream of the crop of every series. You know, like Friday the 13th, you like two the best. You like Nightmare on Elm Street, you like, Three is probably my favorite. There's always Police, one. Police Academy too. Yeah, yeah. There's always one you like more than all the other ones. Rocky Five. Ah, <laughs> come on, I say the worst of the series. I forgot that one's even in it. When you buy the box set, they don't even give you five. No, they're trying to make you forget that it exists. <laughs> uh, but seriously, if you ask fans like, "What's your favorite movie of the series?" They will usually tell you the same answer with this one, and it's this movie. Yeah, so much so that they even had a loosely based reboot done in 2013 by J.J. Abrams for this one. And I actually like that one. Uh, this movie would go on to uh, take in close to $100 million at the box office. That's about $267 million in 2020 off of a $11 million budget. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's huge. At the time, it also had the largest opening weekend ever for a movie to this point, 1982, uh, which was a bit over $14 million, which is pretty fantastic for the time. However, Paramount Home Video would rush this one out to VHS. It would They put this in VHS stores by November of 1982. So like a few months later, this fucking thing came out on rental. And that didn't really happen a lot with a lot of movies. You'd almost nope. wait like a year for them to come out, yeah. but not this one. Uh, which made it one of the most rented and purchased movies of 1983. We actually own this one on RCA disc in my house. I still remember my dad bringing it home, but uh, you know, much like the Indiana Jones VHS release that we mentioned some episodes back where Paramount lowered the price to 39.95. They did the same thing with this one and it encouraged like their, the rest of the VHS market. They slashed their prices. So this is kind of that point you had Indiana Jones slash their prices on this one, and this one did as well, and everyone else followed suit. Uh, but if you haven't figured it out by the 12 movies, and it started in 1966, and it's a sci-fi adventure, this is the Ricardo Maltaban, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy action adventure sci-fi classic, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. You know, and it was actually funny that I read during this, that they took away the executive producer title from Gene Roddenberry and they just made him like a production consultant because from what I gather, he was like a super pain in the ass during the original motion picture where, uh, which came out in 1979 where he was constantly like redoing parts of the movie, rewriting the script. So they said, fuck that. You're just going to watch, bro. We're going to, we got this. And that, like I said before the, uh, I don't know if everybody likes that JJ Abrams one, but I dug the new Star Treks. They're awesome. Yeah. So even both of them, I like that one, but this is the classic. You put all the movies together. Star Trek two wrath of Khan is the best Star Trek. I think that's pretty like, I mean, would you say the same thing? What's your favorite Star Trek? I don't think I've ever seen any of them. Oh, fuck. What? Yeah. I'm not a big Trekkie. I've always tried to get into it. I, I dig the original series. You know, the original TV series. I think I, ha I saw Wrath of Khan when I was a little kid once. I remember the 
the little monster in the thing and he sticks it in his ear and that that just creeped me out, man. Ah, oh, dude, you gotta <laughs> watch it now as an adult. Yeah, no, Con Con's a good one. It's really good. It holds up. It's it's solid fucking movie. Like I just watched it like a month ago. It's still good. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check it out. No spoilers. I'm not gonna be any spoilers. I'm not gonna say anything about the movie. You all go right. watch it. Uh all right. So this is my second pick. Uh December seventeenth, nineteen eighty two. Uh, here's a movie that it had an even larger budget at the time than Star Trek two did coming in at $15 million. So already you can kind of expect this is going to have some serious effects in it, especially for 1982. And the movie did fantastic in the box office as well. Not quite as good as Star Trek two, uh, but it did bring around $41 million in 1982. That's about $110 million in 2020. And honestly, this movie, it did good. But it would have done much better if it wasn't so creepy to us kids. Because this is a fucked up movie, like, watching it. By 1982, I was only four years old. So I hadn't begun watching, like, Friday the 13th yet. That was, like, probably when I was five. So, like, kids like me were, like, kind of freaking out. You had these evil bird lizard people. And (laughs) it's, it's fucked up. And the entire movie is live action and not animated. As a matter of fact, this is the first ever live action motion picture to not star an actual human being. I don't know if you guys know where I'm going with this. I have yet. no clue. I'm I, try, I, trying I, to figure out where you're going with this. I love watching faces when I'm giving the descriptions. Yeah, at first like, I had to remind myself this is movies. I thought you were talking about Land of the Lost for a second. but <laughs> No, it's not. Yeah, this movie was freaky for sure. Definitely. All right, so once again, like my last pick, Netflix picked this one up and they released a prequel last year. So, again, this movie has legs, been around for a long time. Uh, it's good versus evil. It's an adventure. And they have to find the, uh, I think it was like the last dark shard crystal to restore oh, right. balance to the universe in this Jim Henson classic, The Dark Crystal. Yeah. Released okay. December 17th, 1982. Yeah, you threw me so for a loop is. there at first. I wasn't sure where <laughs> you were going with that. Damn. I love it. Like when I'm giving the descriptions, especially when it's a team episode, I love looking at everybody's faces. Yeah. There's usually like one person knows where I'm going and you get that little nod or there's like a (laughs) smile or like just like a blow off. Like, oh, that's a shit pick. I got this round. (laughs) But then on the other side, there's like you could read the entire thing and everyone just is like stone faced and has no fucking clue what you're talking about. And that was this one. Man, now that I know that you pay attention to that, I'm going to start doing that just to fuck you up. <laughs> need a poker face. got to wear sunglasses. Yeah, I'm going to have no clue what you're talking. We'd be like, oh, pff, that's a nothing pick, you know? <laughs> what bullshit. Goodfellas? <laughs> I got this. Star Trek 2. <laughs> yeah, <Garbage. it's> nothing. <laughs> all right, Drew Zachman. All, all around good picks. Uh, I think, um, yeah, all. I think they all qualify as some solid adventures. So we have Man Crush, you have the uh, the Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II. It is a good movie. I liked, um, I forget what the actual name was, but it was the first one that J.G. Abram did. I, w- I would say that's, I probably watched that more than any of the other Star Treks. That one was the first one with Chris Pine. That was, just a, that was Eric Bana's in it, uh, Carl Urban. So it's a pretty solid cast in there. Uh, but yeah, Wrath of Khan, though, great flick. Ricardo Montalban. It's just a fun name to say. Montalban. That guy. That guy is is a, he's a he's a machine. That Ricardo. Yeah, he was in the original episode from the sixties. Yep. And they brought him back. Yep. 
and then Dark Crystal. I knew where you were going with that. Um, I, I feel like we watched that like in our fourth grade class for some reason. I was, I don't know. I wasn't, wasn't feeling it. But uh, I, I remember that Jim Henson's a fucking legend. Um, and then over to you, Mark, you had Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I, this movie's weird. Um, I, I love this movie. We, I watched it maybe like a, like two years ago and I want to, I feel like I have like a hankering to watch it again. I don't know why I love it, but I feel like, you know, you had this, this cast that was insane. You know, you had Kevin Costner, you had Morgan Freeman, Alan Rickman for crying out loud. Uh, you had, I think Rickman was coming right off of uh, Die Hard or not, or not too long after Die Hard. And then you had Christian Slater. Yeah, I think the key to it really is kind of like the pacing because how they spaced it out with the ensemble cast. You know, you got yeah. those scenes with Christian Slater that kind of just moves the story along. And then the stuff with Alan Rickman. I mean, Costner's Costner. You're not going to get much with him. But I think Morgan Friedman, Slater, and Rickman kind of uh, picked up that the whole back end of that production. Yeah, no, and, and Morgan Freeman uh, was the first person ever to do a C-section, if I'm not mistaken, in that movie. So uh, <laughs> we learned a lot. We, we we learned a lot during that. But yeah, it was it was a good flick. It was fun. Um, I, I like I said, I actually want to watch it again, even though I feel like it's uh, maybe not the best rendition of Robin Hood. I think Men in Tights is actually the best. But uh, and, and yeah, that Brian Adams song, holy shit! Uh, you could not put on the radio and not hear that song and you can not watch MTV. And to your point, it is like a, it was a small trailer yeah. for that movie. Yeah. And, and day, I, every day. I still like that song. I will still throw that song yeah, on. Well, look into your heart for the answer here. Give us. A... <laughs> uh, and then, um, and then hook anytime you have Robin Williams involved, it's going to be good. Like I, I, I'm not sure I can remember. I think Robin Williams did. That was terrible. His standup was freaking amazing. He was, so good as uh, the genie in Aladdin. Uh, unfortunately, he is gone, and we're not going to get any more movies from him or anything else because he was just an absolute comedic genius. Probably, my, I would say, probably my favorite comedian. Uh, he's up there with Chappelle. I, I would say Robin Williams is my number one. But I, I think this round, I know it's uh, a little too little too late there, but I, I'm going to go with Mark on these. Wow, the hook brings you back. <laughs> So, yeah, wow. Didn't expect to win that round. I thought Man Crush had some absolutely stellar picks for those movies. But you know what? No, I no, they're all good. I did. They're all good. It's the uh, the power of Robin Williams and Kevin Costner, I guess. The Coss. And a, and a shaven Robin Williams. <laughs> Very shaven. But all right. If you've listened to this episode and you don't agree with Judge Drew Zachman, get a hold of us on our Facebook page. Or write in the comments on wherever you're listening, on iTunes, on Spotify, CastBox. Let us know who you think won each of these rounds, and you'll pick up 20 points on the Dueling Decades leaderboards. Yeah, search your heart, search your soul. <laughs> when you find me and when there. You, and when you find me there, you'll search no more. <laughs> you'll search no more. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're searching, you could actually go over and search Dueling Decades anywhere on the internet, and you'll find DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to all of the episodes and all the shows on iTunes. You can subscribe on CastBox or where anywhere podcasts are available. Again, I want to thank Judge Drew Zachman for coming on the show tonight and being our judge. Tell us what is going on on the One Headlight 90s podcast. Yeah, we have a bunch of uh, fun things coming up, actually. So I think the last thing I, I did was we wrapped up One Hit Wonders, but uh, I'm pushing very hard to try to get a uh, 
an episode about 311 out for a 311 day. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to basically, I'm going to try to like write it and then record it and then edit it tomorrow. We'll see how that goes. Oh but, man, uh, you're going to be all mixed up if you do that. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, you got to get that one down. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> So March Madness is around the corner. So what we're doing is I'm putting together like a bracket style for the best 90s albums. So like a 90s out music albums, March Madness, I guess you could say. Uh, and I'm trying to break it down into groups of eight. So it's only, I'm not going to be 64. We're just going to do 32. Let's, we're going to start small this year. Maybe next year we'll blow it out to 64. But uh, we'll do like a category for like more like hard rock or metal. Then we'll have rock alternative and then kind of pop or kind of basically like others i guess you could say and what we'll do is we'll have people vote on twitter or you can send me emails with you know what your um you know what your votes are or i'll put it up on facebook as well and if you uh i think what i'm gonna probably wind up doing is having people if they can pick the final four right and then the championship right uh we'll have prizes available for them so uh, we'll have that sent out to them. So that's what we have coming up over at the One Headlight 90s podcast. Nice. Sweet. All right, Duelers. I want to thank you once again for listening to this episode of Dueling Decades. Head on over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show. And then head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades. Let us know what your favorite parts of the show is and drop a review on iTunes, on Facebook, right in the comments on CastBox. Anywhere is good. We'll appreciate it. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.